All right, friends, we are in the book of Nehemiah. Hey, um, did you notice on the uh, flyer for Easter, which uh, I was taught in kindergarten was purple, um, not pink, but anyway, um, <laughs> on the flyer uh, for Easter, uh, we're having three services uh, this year. We're doing it here at this particular facility. We're having three services, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11, so even the timing is a little different from the normal first service that we would do, which is uh, this one, 9.15. Um, we are not offering a children's program first service. Right, so if you have children that you would like to put into our children's program, that would be during the second two services. So please take note of that, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11. Uh, and also, hey, you know, um, I'd love to be able to give sort of our Sunday school regular teachers a break uh, if possible. So maybe you've taught years ago and you kind of came off the list. Maybe a great opportunity for you to kind of jump back in uh, and, and serve in our Sunday school so some of those regulars can get a little bit of a break. Or maybe you've been thinking about it. Um, we can plug you in, perhaps. Uh, so would you consider that and pray about that? That's coming up for Easter. All right, as I mentioned, we are in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, excuse me, uh, Easter's, what, a month away, I think? Not even? Um, so it's, it's coming up. My goodness. All right, so as I said, we are in the book of Nehemiah. Just trying to find it here. Ezra, Nehemiah, got it. All right, let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the time to gather together. And Lord, we do ask that you would come and you'd speak to our hearts and you'd teach us. Lord, we pray that this would be uh, just a really profitable time, not just kind of coming in and going out and, and in some respects even forgetting what it is we considered, but Lord, that we would look, Lord, intently into the Word of God and, and read it and consider it and then have it read and consider us as well, and that you would challenge us uh, this morning. You'd grow us, you'd encourage us. Lord, I pray you would refresh our spirits. Lord, if we're coming from sort of a rough week, that we might just be able to come this morning unhindered and sit in your presence and you'd minister to us. Lord, I pray you would challenge us to go from here and uh, to do those things you would have us to do. Lord, if you're speaking to our hearts, that we would take that difficult next step to walk in faith. And so, Lord, we, uh, we lay ourselves down before you and ask that you would do a good work this morning. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off right in the middle of chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah, so today we're just going to kind of pick right up there, but let me remind you just real quickly that uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 is the first of the recorded prayers of this guy, this priest, this uh, governor fella uh, who's going to come uh, to the nation there of Jerusalem, or the city there of Jerusalem, and he prays 12 different times in the book. Uh, and so we know from that that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. And it jumps right into his prayer life there in chapter 1. And we've learned a couple of things already about him. The very first thing that we saw in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, is where he is. Nehemiah is in this city of Susa. And it's while he's in the city of Susa where he gets word that the city of Jerusalem, 800 miles away, is lying in ruin. You can see there in verse 3, it said that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And that's significant to Nehemiah because his heart was in the city of Jerusalem. We also see something that really impacts him is this point that is also made in verse 3 that the Jewish people, those that had survived the exile in Babylon, that the Jewish people that have returned to Jerusalem are in, as it says there, great trouble and great shame. And that breaks the heart of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, as we saw there, he will begin in verse 4 to weep and to mourn for days. And again, that stands out to me because here's Nehemiah 800 miles away. 
the vast majority of people that are in Jerusalem, if not all of the people that are in Jerusalem, he's never even met before. And yet his heart is broken over the fact that there are people that are there that are in trouble and in great shame. The city of Jerusalem he had probably never even gone to. And yet his heart is broken that the city lie or lay in ruin. And Susa, when you, when you take all of those things, and then you remind yourself of one last fact, Susa was the sort of the winter capital of the ancient world. And it was one of the most uh, wealthy, opulent cities of the ancient world. So this guy was living the high life, and yet his heart breaks over a distant people that he doesn't even know that are in a city that his heart is for that is lying in ruin. And I appreciate that. Nehemiah's heart, it breaks. But more than that, you know, it's one thing to have pity. Oh, that poor guy over there, I feel so bad for him. It's one thing to have pity for someone or something or some people or some place, but it's another thing to let that pity move your heart to move you to action. And that's what's going to happen with Nehemiah. And though he has this pity, his heart is moved, and the first thing that he will begin to do is begin to fast and to pray. Nehemiah doesn't critique, but instead, for these guys for their failure, but instead Nehemiah begins to pray for these guys and the failure that they're experiencing. Rather than just going up there and start criticizing. If only the church was more this, and if only people would do more that, and if more people would show up for this, we wouldn't be having it. He doesn't critique them for that. He agonizes in prayer for them. And I think that's the heart that God would have each of us to have as well, particularly as we seek to lead or to influence other people. We can become the critics, or we can become the folks that work to solve the problem. And we can become people of prayer and go before the Lord for his direction. And last week when we were together, we started this prayer. And it's recorded for us in verses 5 through 11. And we've already learned three things. We're going to learn six things, really, in the prayer. But we've already learned three things. The first thing that we learned from the opening words of the prayer is where Nehemiah says in verse 5, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and the awesome God. The first thing Nehemiah does is remind himself of who God is. And I think that's a very important thing for us to be doing. Put everybody in the proper perspective. And everyone in their proper place. You may recall that I said that Nehemiah reminds himself there's one that sits enthroned in heaven and then it's not him. And that's a good thing for us to remind ourselves that there is one that sits enthroned in heaven and it's not you and I as well. It is him. And he is the sovereign one and we are to be submitted to him. So he begins himself by reminding himself of who God is. The second thing we also saw in verse 5, and that was the phrase, who keeps covenant, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so Nehemiah reminded himself of who God is, but then Nehemiah reminded God of who God is. He reminded God that you're a covenant-keeping God. You're a good God. And in the whole process, he's reminding himself of that, but he's reminding God of who he is, that he's a covenant-keeping God. Despite the fact that God is awesome, and God is terrible, and God is greatly to be feared, all those things that Nehemiah said in his prayer he speaks to God about the character of God. God, you're faithful. You're true. You're a man of your word, is the phrase that I used. And it's based on God's character, that he's faithful and true and a man of his word, that Nehemiah is going to appeal to God in the rest of his prayer. So look at verse 6. He says, So let your ear be attentive, your eyes open, to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And the third thing then that we see is this, Nehemiah's dependence on God to solve the problem. And as we said, Nehemiah, a very capable leader, all sorts of ability and intellect, access to all sorts of resources, 
that he could tap into to solve this problem of the city lying in ruin. But rather than sitting down and immediately doing those things, he sits down and rather than devising a plan, going to the drawing board and devising a plan, he sits before the Lord to hear the heart of the Lord. And that demonstrates to us as this leader, this very capable leader, nonetheless he is still completely dependent on the Lord. Remember, this task of rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, the city that has sat in ruin for nearly 150 years, this task is too daunting for anyone. Lots of guys, we've read about them, have tried to rebuild the walls before Nehemiah, and once generation after generation after generation, they failed. And now Nehemiah thinks he's going to be the guy that can just step in and do it. The reality is he couldn't. The task was going to be too much for him. And so... He goes before the Lord. Total dependence on the Lord. Great demonstration of godly leadership. Well, today, we are going to go through the rest of this prayer. So why don't we read through the whole prayer, starting in verse 5. It says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though you were dispersed, your dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So as we saw, Nehemiah reminds himself of who God is. He reminds God of who he is. And then he demonstrates total dependence on God. The fourth thing that Nehemiah will do is this. He will confess. He'll begin his prayer with confession. And he confesses the sin both of the nation of Israel, but notice he also confesses his own sin here. And we see that there in verse 6 where he says, confessing the sins of the people. Now remember, it was the sin of the people that got them into this mess. And until they acknowledge that as such, and they forsake it completely, God wasn't going to be able to bless them. Now, let me just pose this question. Have you ever felt in your life that God's blessing just seems to be absent and missing? You just don't feel like you're in that flow. And you just kind of constantly feel like you're going against the stream of things. And you begin to wonder, God, where's your hand? Why aren't you blessing these things? Why, why isn't, aren't things going smoothly? Now, I will say this. It's not always the case that if things don't go smoothly in our lives, that God is not in it. We see an example of that in the book of Job, for instance, and I don't think we need any other examples. So it's not always the case, just because things don't go smoothly, that God isn't necessarily blessing you or in it. But I would say this. It's something that we want to consider that perhaps the reason his hand seems absent absent, I should say, is because there is the presence in our life of unrepentant sin in our lives, an area of our lives that God just can't seem to bless. If you've been with us for a little while, you may recall a little while back, I gave the absurd example 
of a group of people grabbing hands, standing together and say, Lord, as we go in and rob this grocery store, please bless us, that God can't bless such a thing. There are certain things that God can't bless, and that prayer is one of those examples that he can't. There are things that he can bless and things that he cannot bless. And the consequences of those things that we can't bless, we are then forced to experience. And so knowing that reality, if we're walking in sin and God can't bless us, then all that we are doing is essentially digging the hole a little bit deeper. And so we rely on that wonderful verse from the New Testament, which says if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us. We can confidently rest in the knowledge that we can return and that as his children, that he will bless us. So again, the question then becomes, well, how far will we go until we turn back to him? How deep of a hole are we willing to dig for ourselves? How painful the consequences we are willing to allow ourselves to endure? And so whether it's a city that lay in ruin, or it just seems that God is, his hand is absent from our day-to-day lives, we are wise to begin our prayer with confession. A seeking of the Lord and a confession of our sins. Now sometimes we say, well, I don't think I have any sin to confess. Not all of us think that, apparently. All right, but some of the times we think, I don't have any sins to confess. You know, I'm all prayed up here. And, and I think that's good. Honestly, I would suggest that. There may be times where you're kind of going through life and you, you feel like, you know, I'm not perfect or whatever, but I feel like I'm, I'm okay with the Lord. I'm in the right place. I think if you are a person that confesses sin moment by moment, as opposed to waiting, you know, it's, what's it, April 1st? All right, I got to go confess or something. That's a bad idea. If you wait to the end of the day, that's not so bad. You know, you put your head down and you pillow, Lord, you know, I struggled today, I did this, did that, and you confess it, that's not so bad. But I would suggest the best time to be confessing sin is as soon as God makes sin aware to you. You become aware of that sin. Oh, Lord, I can't believe I snapped it. Or would you forgive me? Lord, would you, this is my, art, my attitude, it's a bad attitude. And confess it as you go. So now you are sitting down, you're going to pray, you think that, where's the hand of the Lord? I don't feel like he's blessing us. I want to know, is there any sin in my life? Whatever it may be. Well, here is a prayer that I would suggest you can pray. It's similar to the song we sang earlier. It's from Psalm 139. This is what David wrote. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. See, I think what David is doing there is essentially saying, as far as I can tell, I'm in a right place with you, Lord. But let's all be honest. Our hearts, aren't they a little bit deceptive? Our hearts, sometimes they, they make us think everything is great. And then maybe a little bit down the road, we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I used to think that way. I can't believe I used to act that way to people. And God has begun to reveal things to us. And it is a great prayer to go before the Lord and just say, Lord, here I am. Would you search me? Would you know every part of me? Would you reveal to me those areas of my life that are not of you? And then would you lead me in the way that is everlasting. If we will seek him, the Bible promises that he will graciously reveal himself to us and he will reveal to us those areas of our lives that fall short. And so here is Nehemiah going before the Lord and confessing his sin. We saw that Daniel did the same thing when Daniel wasn't necessarily the guy that was the sinner that was causing all of these problems. He's the one we look to as, if you will, the saint. But Daniel nonetheless confesses his sin. We saw when we were looking at the book of Ezra that as he would go to lead the people that he would confess the sin as his own sin. And now Nehemiah is doing the same thing. Look at verse 6. He says, we have sinned. A little later in that same verse, he says, I and my father's house have sinned. And then in verse 7, he adds, and we have acted very corruptly. So nowhere in the prayer do you see Nehemiah sort of explaining away the sin. 
All he does is simply confess it. He doesn't say, this prayer, have you ever prayed this prayer? God, if I have sinned in any way, well, let's just assume you have. All right? You don't have to ask God if you have sinned in any way. You know that you have. For the record, you have. He doesn't say something like, God, you know how hard it is for me in this particular area. As if God's going to say, you know, you're right. Don't worry about that. You can continue in that area or something like that. God doesn't work that way. And so he doesn't come with any sort of excuses, just straightforward, honest confession. Nehemiah is not some self-righteous Pharisee that prays a prayer like this, Lord, I thank you I'm not like those clowns in Jerusalem. And the reason why they're still where they are and they don't have your hand of blessing is because they're a bunch of sinners. So Lord, do what you got to do. Bring the heavy hand and bring conviction. He doesn't pray a prayer like that. He's not self-righteous. He goes before the Lord as a sinner himself. Because Nehemiah knows that the nation has sinned. But more than that, he knows that his family has sinned. And I think most importantly, he knows that he has sinned. And the Word of God says this. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66. If I hold on to iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. And so at the very start of his prayer, Nehemiah begins with humility and brokenness. He begins with nakedness, if you will, figuratively. He sits before the Lord fully exposed and he says, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and see. Now throughout the book of Nehemiah, we're going to continue to go back to these principles of leadership. That Nehemiah is this fantastic leader, a godly leader that we can look to, we can pattern the way that we lead or influence other people. And so I want to point out one of those particular areas here uh, with the example of Nehemiah. Do you want to lead people? Do you want to lead people spiritually? Then you have to do what Nehemiah does. And if you look here, Nehemiah honestly identifies with the people. Unfortunately, for a lot of folks, leadership is where I rise to the top and, every, and I'm separate from everyone else and everyone kind of serves me and ministers to me. But the reality in the scripture and a godly leader is this, is the leader is not better than those they lead. And nor do they separate themselves from those they lead. That the leader doesn't exist, or the people don't exist to serve the leader, but the leader, he or she exists to serve the people. You know, the point of the pyramid, we're all trying to get to the top of that pyramid there. The point of the pyramid in the Christian faith, it doesn't point upward, but the point of the pyramid points downward. And any progress we make in our leadership is downward to the point where we become the servant of all, like Jesus. You recall this verse, it says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And Nehemiah demonstrates for us a leader who leads with humility. And he puts, that puts him in a perfect place for God to bless him. And so he starts his prayer with confession. Now continuing in his prayer, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Now remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed thee under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. Now, Nehemiah now is starting to really dig into the prayer. All right, so what was he going to pray for? Hey, we want to pray that God will do a work so that Jerusalem can be rebuilt, right? That's, that's the meat of what he wants to be praying about. Before he can do that, he reminds God of who he is. Uh, he reminds himself of who God is. He total dependence. He confesses his sin. Now he's going to jump into sort of the meat of the prayer. Notice what he does here. He reminds God 
of God's Word. He recites back to God what the Word of God says. And now again, this demonstrates Nehemiah's firm reliance on the character of God. Nehemiah is convinced, as I believe every one of us should be, Nehemiah is convinced that God will do that which God said He will do. And God had said in a few different places, and specifically what we're looking at here, Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had said that if the people were unfaithful, that He was going to scatter them. Here you are, I've brought you to Israel, I've brought you to the promised land, I've deposited you there in Jerusalem, I have chosen to allow my presence to dwell in that city in a very special way. But know this, Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy 28, if you stray from me, and if you go after the other gods, and if you do these things, I will scatter you among the nations to the furthest of heavens, it speaks about. That was the word of God to the people. And so what had happened in the history of the people? The people had drifted, the people had strayed, the people began to worship and serve other gods, and so what did God do? He continually sent prophets to warn them. If you continue to do this, this is what's going to happen. And the people laughed the prophets to scorn. Sometimes they would listen, other times, most times they would not. And eventually it got worse and worse, and what did God do? He scattered the Jews across the nations. First to the Assyrians, and then to the Babylonians. He said he would do it. And so here is Nehemiah. He's saying, look, Lord, you said you were going to do these things, and you do it. But there's a key word in here, and this is the reason why Nehemiah brings it up in this section of Scripture. Look in the middle of there at verse 8. He says, but, yes, God said he would scatter them if they were unfaithful, but he also said, and this is the point Nehemiah is making, if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, even though you're dispersed under the farthest skies, I will gather you back from there. And so he reminds God, you said this, and you did it, but you also said this. And I trust that you'll do that as well, Nehemiah does. I think Nehemiah probably has in, in mind this verse. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore you your fortunes and have compassion on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God scattered you. So that's Deuteronomy 31-3. But notice the next verse, verse 4. It says, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. If God is going to hear from the uttermost parts of heaven the repentant cry of His children and bring them back, well then don't you think He can hear from down the street in Jerusalem the repentant cry of the Jewish people and bring them back or restore them? Absolutely, that's the point. Nehemiah is simply calling upon God to do what God said he would do. And again, he's believing that God is a man of his word. God said it, and he believes it, so that really settles the whole issue. And so, if God had never said such a thing, if God had never said you could do these horrible things and go this horrible direction and be judged for that, but if you repent, I'll hear and I'll return you to your land. If he had never said that, then it would be somewhat presumptuous for Nehemiah to assume that he could do that. Go to God and ask for his mercy. But God said it. And since God had said it, Nehemiah is simply taking God at his word. And I would suggest you, you can never go wrong praying the word of God, because God will always honor his word. And there's a number of books that are out in the Christian market and all that 
which speak about essentially praying the Word of God. And it just goes through the Word of God and it takes the prayers that other men and women uh, in the Scripture have prayed or those that God said that we could pray. And so I would encourage you to pick up a resource like that or just even in your devotional time. As you're going through the Word, jot down those prayers. Jot down those things that God said and then begin to pray them back to the Lord because God's going to honor His Word. Now Nehemiah continues and he says, I guess this is what, verse 10? He says, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah is asking the Lord for his ear. Could I have your ear for a minute? Could I run something by you? He's asking the Lord to be attentive to him. And specifically, toward the end of that verse that I just read, he's praying that God would give his servant, which is Nehemiah, that God would give Nehemiah success and mercy in the sight of this man. Well, who's this man? You see that there in verse 11? Well, this man is referring to Artaxerxes. And we introduced Artaxerxes last week. Artaxerxes is the king of the world at this time. The Leonardo DiCaprio of his day. He's the, you know the story, forget it. He's the king of the world. More specifically, Persia, which is the world ruling empire at that particular time. That's the man. And he, he's the most powerful man in the world. And yet he just simply says, Lord, in, when I go into this man, would you give me favor? And I appreciate that. Because remember, Nehemiah, he had put everything and everyone into their proper perspective. Remember that phrase, there's one that sits on the throne and it's God in heaven? Not Nehemiah, not you and I, not anyone else, not even King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man that exists in the world in that particular day. He too is just another man because God is the one. Everything is in proper perspective. There's a, a book that my wife recommends to a number of her clients. Some of you may not know, my wife is a biblical counselor. She meets with clients and, and different things like that. And as she shares with them, oftentimes she'll point them to various resources that she has found to be very helpful that speak into the particular area that that person is working through or wrestling with. And one of those resources that I have seen come to my house all the time because it gets delivered by Amazon and, oh, I got that book again. And say, yeah, some lady, it's going to be great for her. I can't wait to give it to her. Well, the book is entitled When People Are Big and God is Small. And it's by Dr. Ed Welch. And the gist of the book is this. It's that sadly too often that our fear of people or desire to please people, it becomes magnified in our lives while our fear of God and the desire to please God is proportionately minimized. You catch the gist of the book? That we magnify people and we minimize God. And it's because we fear that we're not going to please them or they're not going to like us or they're not going to think well of us and all these things. And whenever we do that, and we change and alter who we are and what we do and how, why we do the things we do, and we magnify people, at the same time we minimize the Lord. I think it's okay to respect people. I think it's okay to honor folks like Artaxerxes for the position uh, that he holds. But a danger sets in when we are less interested in who God is and how God is leading than we are what the guy or that gal down the street is going to think about us. And when we worry more about that, that's when we get ourselves into trouble and into compromise and ultimately into rebellion and sin. So is that something that you struggle with? Now, it may not be fear of a king in your life that causes you to alter your manner of living or to violate your standard of conscience, but perhaps it's the cool kids at school 
And I know we have a number of kids that are still in school, and old people, you used to go to school. And you may recall, Al, a long time ago, I know, yeah. But you may recall in that one-room schoolhouse, Al, you know, when you were there, I'm just kidding. Al said, I just want everyone to know, when, I used to make fun of Kevin Barber for being old, and Al said when Kevin moved to Florida that I could now make fun of him for being old. He said, I'd like to be the old guy. Al, you told everyone on Facebook you're one of the five oldest in the church. I think that is fantastic, and we love you, brother. Uh, and we will take you at your word and keep making fun of you, if you want us to. I'm just kidding. But, you know, maybe you alter your behavior because the cool kids at school aren't going to like who you are. Or maybe if you're in college, it's that antagonistic professor. Or for those of us that are kind of living our lives and grown and, and raising our families, whatever it may be, maybe it's the neighbors up the street and what they're going to think about you and the type of person you are. And Bible study? Church? I thought you were normal. You don't seem so normal. You know, some of us, it's the people we graduated high school with. And we're in our 40s and our 50s, and we're still worried about the kids that we graduated high school with and if they're going to think we made it in life and we become that person or whatever it may be or that person we graduated college with. You know, if you want to be used by the Lord and you want to be a person of influence in the lives of others, but you fear man too much to step out and lead the way that God is moving you to lead, well, you'll never be that person that God can use. You're going to have to get past it at some point, worrying about what other people are going to think about you. And you're going to have to come to the place where you say, you know what, God, I submit to you above all others. You remember in Acts chapter 4, just after Jesus had died and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit had come and he had filled the disciples, and the disciples were going out and they were doing ministry. You have the day of Pentecost, lots of people came to know the Lord. Well, there's this one instance where the Apostle John and Peter, they're out ministering, and they get themselves in trouble with the legal authorities of the day. And they parade them in, and they scold them, essentially. And it says in verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So these authorities instruct John and Paul that they're not allowed to teach or preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Now the passage goes on to say that John and Peter had every intention to continue telling people about Jesus. And that's not because they were rebellious at heart. You see, some of us, we like to pick fights. And so if I tell you no, even if you didn't want that, now you want it. Because you just like to pick fights with people and you like to be oppositional. That's not John and Peter here, though. They're not just trying to pick fights with other people, but they say, you know what, we're going to do it anyway, because they're choosing to obey God rather than man. These are their words, Acts 4.19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. We have two choices. We can either follow God in His leading, or we can follow you and what you're leading us to do. And we're making the choice we're going to follow God. And essentially, that's what each of us need to do. Because for these guys here, obeying them was more, excuse me, obeying God was more important than obeying these men. And again, put it in context. Remember that it was just two months earlier that these guys had the power, or at least they were able to influence those that had the power, to grab Jesus and drag him in and do all the things that they did to Jesus on Good Friday and, and uh, that were familiar with the crucifixion. So these are some pretty significant people that should probably be feared in the flesh. But Peter and John are saying, you know what? We just have to obey the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, steps of obedience, that is following the Lord and how he's leading and not worrying about what other people are going to think about us, steps of obedience aren't always easy. Honoring God above men is not always a piece of cake. And sometimes it may present all sorts of challenges with it. But if we want 
God's blessing, then we have to follow God's leading. And we are at risk of preventing that from happening when people are magnified and God is conversely minimized. And so Nehemiah asked God for his favor. Now Nehemiah is about to go before the king, and so he says, Lord, would you give me your favor in the sight of this particular man? As I said, the man is Artaxerxes, the king of the world. And the reason why Nehemiah will have access to the king, I've never prayed to have favor with President Obama because I'm never probably going to meet President Obama, at least not in some significant meeting where I can share something with him. But this guy has access to the king because if you look at verse 11, just before chapter 2 there, it says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. Now the cupbearer to the king was more than just a guy that tasted the wine or ate a portion of the food to see if it was poisoned. That was sort of how the position started here. Try this first. If you don't keel over, then I'll take a bite or I'll take a sip of that as well. That's how it started. But the cupbearer sort of morphed into a much more significant position in the ancient world and in, in this particular kingdom. The cupbearer became sort of the personal bodyguard to the king. And more importantly, because of their close proximity to the king day in and day out, their position morphed into one of being sort of the personal advisor to the king. One commentator that I read, he likened the position to the chief of staff for a president or a prime minister of a nation. And a king would place a great deal of trust in his cupbearer, meaning that the cupbearer had to be a man that was known for being faithful and a man of character. Now, a lot of us, I think, would like to be in a position like that. And we think, not tasting poison food, but in a position of power like that. How exciting it would be to, to be close to power. How exciting it would be to have that kind of power, to be the chief advisor to the king of the world. And we see sort of this golden ring, and we reach out for it, and we even make promises to God that if we could just grab it, and we could get that position, Lord, I promise that I will be faithful and I'll be honest and I'll be trustworthy and I'll be a great chief advisor to the king. And of course we know that's not the way it works, does it? Faithfulness and character must first be established or we will never find ourselves in a position like that in the first place. Faithfulness, faithfulness and character, it's not something that we will have time to develop on the job when we get the job, but it's going to have to be something that we possess or we will never get the job. And the New Testament, it speaks this way. It says this, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. It has to be proven beforehand. Or you'll never get the position to begin with. And if you want to be someone that is entrusted with, quote-unquote, the big things of life first, you have to establish that you can be trusted with the very small things. You have to live in such a way that when a position opens up, and the two key qualifications are faithfulness and character. And they begin to think, all right, who would fit this position? We need a guy or a gal that is faithful and is just a man or a woman of character. You have to have lived your life in such a way that you're the person who naturally comes to mind. And if you're the person who naturally comes to mind, then they're going to come to you and offer you the position. Or they'll never offer it to begin with. You have to be the one who naturally comes to mind. And so I want to make one final point here. Here's Nehemiah, has no idea what God is going to do down the line. He's just a kid that is growing up in exile. He's living his life. He's going to school. He's trying to be the best that he can be and do the best he can to prepare himself wherever God might be. He always has in his heart this desire for Jerusalem. He doesn't know kind of why. He lives 800 miles away, but it's in there, and that's God doing his thing. 
He's prepared himself. He's been faithful in the little things. He's risen to this particular position of power. In some respects, you might say, second in the kingdom, uh, like Joseph was in the book of Genesis. He's got the ear of the king. He has made it. He's made it as far as earthly success was concerned. And as we'll see in the book, and I, I suspect many of you are already familiar, we're going to see that he steps out anyway. He's made it. But he steps out anyway, and he risks losing it all for the sake of following God's leading. Nehemiah risks his position. He risks his power. He risks his influence. He risks his possessions. He even risks his pride. What if this whole thing's a miserable failure? He risks his pride as well that he might be involved in the work of God. And you know, we know the name of Nehemiah today not because he was a cupbearer to the king. Let me ask you, who was the cupbearer of Cyrus? Just a few years earlier. Nobody knows? What did his mom name him? All right. Who was the cupbearer of Darius? Who was the cupbearer of Nebuchadnezzar? You know, to go a different direction. Who was the chief of staff for President Washington, our first president? It's only a couple hundred years ago. Who was chief of staff for him? Who was chief of staff for Lincoln? Who's the current chief of staff of the United States of America? Does anyone know? It's that guy right there. There. That's the current chief of staff. What's his name? Anybody know? No. What did his mom call him? Who are these children? All right. That guy's name, his name is Dennis McDonough. I don't even know if that's how you say his name, but I, that's how you spell it at least. My point is this. Sometimes we may look and we may hear what God is calling us to do and we might say to ourselves something like this, you know, I have so much to lose if I step out here. I'm the cupbearer to the king. I'm the chief advisor to the president. I have so much to lose if I step out here. We only know the name Nehemiah because he did step out. So the reality is this. We shouldn't be saying, I have so much to lose if I step out. But what we should be saying is, I have so much to lose if I don't step out here in faith and follow the direction that God is going. So you want to be great in the kingdom of God? And honestly, any one of us in this room that is desiring to know the Lord, present ourselves right before Him, praying prayers like, Lord, search me and know me, try me and see. Any one of us that are praying prayers like that, we all desire to be great in the kingdom of God. Not because we want our name to go down in history, not because we want everyone to know who we are, because we want God's name to be glorified. And it's great people in the kingdom of God that draw glory to the Lord Jesus and draw people to himself, and that's what we want to do. So if you're seeking hard after the Lord, that is the natural inclination of your heart, Lord, make me great for the kingdom of God. Cause people to be influenced because of the life that I'm living and the words that I'm speaking. Well, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, first you must establish yourself as being faithful in the small things, and then when the opportunity arises, being a person that steps out in faith. We have to be people that step out in faith, like a Nehemiah, and take the chances, like Nehemiah. We have to be a church that steps out in faith. Go back and read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 in particular. And again, consider the men and women that are listed in that chapter. Remember, that's the, the hall of faith, they call it. And you look at the men and women that are listed in chapter 11 at, for, as examples for us. They are men and women in almost every case that were living good, comfortable, honorable lives. Who would have, if they would have died, they would have had a nice funeral number of people would have came, they would have said nice things about them, and then they would have had cookies and stuff afterward. And everyone would say, he was such a good guy. Nice, honorable, comfortable lives. But each one of them in Hebrews 11, despite all of that, they stepped out in faith, risking it all. You remember Moses reigned in the house of Pharaoh. 
the world ruling empire of his day. Abraham left great wealth, it says, to go to the place that God would show him. He ended up living the rest of his days in tents, sacrificed it all because he wanted to go where God was leading. We read of Queen Esther in the next book of, uh, of our Bible here, just following Nehemiah. We read of her in uh, Esther chapter 4 saying, if I die, I die. That's risking it all, isn't it? And taking that chance, despite the fact that she was queen of the nation, she says, if I die, I die. And as I mentioned in a recent study, the book of Esther, it fits right in here with our study of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, all in the same time period. And it reveals to us that people like Ezra, when people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Joshua and all of those folks that we've been reading about, looking at in our last couple of months of study, every one of them lived in a time where great faith and courage was required of the people of God. And it's because of men and women like them that that work which previously sat dormant for 150 years was at last begun and ultimately, as we'll see in the book, completed. They lived in a time where people had to step out. And I think we live in a day where similar steps of faith are required if we want to see God accomplish that which all of our hearts are longing for him to accomplish. Simply, do you have a friend? That's it. Do you have a friend? No, I'm kidding. Do you have a friend that you want to see come to know the Lord? Well, when was the last time you prayed for God to open a door for you to share with them? You know, one of the guys in the office came in this week. He said, it was amazing. I drove into work saying, Lord, give me an opportunity to share. And I got an opportunity to share. And he was all excited. And I was a little bit uh, humbled because I remember when I prayed those prayers every day. And I prayed that God would do it. And I looked for every opportunity. And is this the door, Lord? Do you pray those types of prayers any longer? God, open a door. And when God does open the door, when was the last time you stepped through that door? And you began to share with someone, and you took the chance of how they might respond to you. Do you want to see a Bible study start at your place of business? Well, how long until you finally drum up the courage to contact human resources and say, hey, can I have a room at lunchtime? I'd like to meet with a group of people and have a Bible study and time of prayer during our lunch hour. If you want to see it, you're going to have to step out in faith. I remember when I was working with the Trenton Titans, that was the hockey team down in Trenton there, and I was the team's chaplain, chaplain, I should say. It's a funny story. One guy came to the church. He's a hockey player uh, because he misread the website. He thought it said that I was captain of the Trenton Titans. He's like, oh, this guy's a hockey player, and somehow he's the pastor too. That's great, you know, or whatever. And uh, he came for a little while, and then he realized that it wasn't true. But anyhow, <laughs> I used to serve as the chaplain of the Trenton Titans, and I remember hearing the backstory. I was with an organization that was called Hockey Ministries International. And hockey ministries, uh, they're like, almost like the baseball chapel. Uh, baseball chapel is the most well-known in the professional sports, and uh, they send chaplains into all the professional teams. And hockey ministries decided to basically model it after that. And they put chaplains in all the professionals from, you know, like the Philadelphia Flyers and all those guys down to the junior leagues and colleges and all that. Uh, and most of, in professional sports, you oftentimes have to play on the weekends so you can't get yourself to a church or whatever. And so they bring chapels in who essentially bring church into the locker room. And so hockey ministries wanted to go into uh, the East Coast Hockey League, which is Trenton and, and those that were around this particular area. And they had a very difficult time. And the leadership of the professional hockey world wasn't interested in chapel services in any way. And the reason why they weren't is it was their understanding that when people get Jesus, then they turn the other cheek. 
And turning the other cheek is not what you do in hockey. You turn the other fist and you drop the gloves or whatever. And they, their fear was that they were going to get soft, that they were going to be too nice. People going uh, to, to church would become soft and weak and not something you're looking for from your big, tough hockey players. I remember a study I did once. I, I like the title. Would Jesus cross-check? Well, cross-checking is technically illegal, but everybody does it. And as long as you don't put it up in the stick up in people's faces, we can look the other way or whatever, right? Kind of? Yeah, Brendan knows. He was a hockey player for Ryder and stuff like that. So would Jesus technically cheat uh, when everyone else does? That was the study. It led to a great conversation. I don't know if the guys agreed with what I came up with at the end here, but that was our study. And, and I bring it up because I want to tell you about a guy. His name was Brian McKenna. Brian McKenna used to play professionally in the NHL, and he went on to become the commissioner of the ECHL, which is kind of like the AA division of hockey. And Brian, when he was in the NHL, he saw the value of chapel ministry in his life as a professional athlete. And so he decided he would make the tough decision as the brand new commissioner of the ECHL. I'd really admire this guy for this. That he saw, he decided he would break the trend and put his reputation on the line and open the doors for each team in the league to have a chaplain. And that's how I became the chaplain of the Trenton Titans. You see, if we're going to do these things that God is leading us and God is directing us, we're going to have to take steps of faith. And we're going to have to put ourselves on the line, and people may not really like it. And he was taking a chance in that particular way, as was Moses, as was Esther, as was Abraham. We live in very interesting times. And we live in a very rapidly changing culture. And the divide in our nation seems to be growing more and more cavernous every day. Gone are the days when Christianity was sort of the mainstream default of our society. And we have entered a day where taking a stand for Jesus will put you at a very real odds with the culture as a whole. If you express biblically what you think about something like homosexuality, or creation, or tra traditional family values, you are immediately castigated as bigoted or uneducated, and as we have just seen even, as we're moving toward our next presidential election, that they're asking folks, what's your view on creation and evolution? And one particular candidate said, well, I believe creation. And the media has pretty much determined you're not fit to be a, a president if you believe such a foolish idea like that. That's the days that we live in. You take a stand for Jesus, and you are setting yourself up against the culture as a whole. We have entered a period of history where that which is good is being labeled as evil, and that which is evil is being labeled as good. And so, brother and sister, this is the point. If you really want to take a stand for the Lord in these last days, a couple of things. Number one, you must look past any fear of man. Secondly, you're going to have to look past what you may lose for taking that stand. And then thirdly, you have to firmly fix your eyes on him who sits enthroned in heaven. How's he leading us? And that alone must be the thing that guides us as we seek to walk with him. Amen? Would you agree with that? Amen. Father, we thank you for the word. And Lord, it's challenging. Lord, I, I think we could easily put ourselves in Nehemiah's place and say to ourselves, would I take that step of courage? Would I go before the king and petition for a people that I don't even know? Would I follow your leading and risk losing everything? And Father, I confess, I know the answer because I make little decisions like that every day. 
where I'm reluctant to open my mouth or I'm reluctant to go a particular place or do a particular thing for the consequences that might ensue or how people might think of me. And Lord, I, I think uh, honestly we want to be people that are used by you. We want to see you do amazing things, good things in our lives and through us and in the lives of the people we come in contact with and care about. And so, Father, fix our eyes firmly on heaven. Lord, we ask that you would reveal more of yourself. Lord, that you would cause our gaze to be just uh, unhindered and even more clear. Lord, that we would just get a real clear view of your face, really, and hear your voice. And Lord, truly, that nothing else would really matter. Everything else would just sort of fade off into the distance. So, Father, where we need to, I just ask you would bring conviction and you challenge us. But you do so in a way that doesn't leave us here sort of with our, our heads down. But you would do so in that loving way you do, Lord, where by your grace you'd be drawing us to yourself and so that our heads would be sort of lifted up looking to you and excited about where you're leading and what you're going to do this week ahead of us. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time, Lord, in your word. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name.